This is Gurus, the story of acting. I'm Jeff Zinn. In this episode and the next, I want to tell part of the story of the Moscow Art Theater, also known as the MAT. I say part of the story because even though it was founded in 1898 and still survives, the really interesting piece of it spans less than 20 years. Things went drastically sideways for the MAT during and after the Russian Revolution. So while it is still very much alive, for much of the last hundred years, it seems to have functioned mainly as an arm of the state. That's not usually a good recipe for artistic growth, and this is no exception. Those early years are well worth looking at, though, because during that period, the Moscow Art Theater was the incubator for ideas that transformed the way actors think about what they do. But those new ideas didn't come all at once or firmly take hold right away. Before any of that could happen, the company itself needed to be built. After their fabled 18-hour meeting at the Slavyansky Bazaar, Stanislavski and Nemirovich went to work fleshing out their grand scheme. And when I say grand, I'm not exaggerating. Many, if not most, theater companies seem to start small and grow. Steppenwolf started as a storefront theater in Chicago. Joe Papp's public theater, which today is a producing behemoth with an annual budget of more than $50 million, started by putting on plays from the back of flatbed trucks and in Central Park before they finagled an in-perpetuity one-dollar-a-year lease for their current home on Lafayette Place. When I arrived at Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater, there was seating for 45 on wooden folding chairs, and the total annual budget hovered just north of zero. After 20 years, we had managed to build a real theater with 220 seats, and the budget had risen to $1.2 million. The Moscow Art Theater, by contrast, started big and stayed big. They were determined to be the theater in Moscow. The annual budget for that first year in today's money was about $1.4 million, but that number is deceptively small. Trying to compare what they were attempting to do on that budget is almost impossible. Exchange rates, buying power, 1898 rubles to 2022 dollars, apples to oranges. It gets very, very complicated. What is clear is that what they were attempting was incredibly ambitious. In its first year, the acting company would consist of 38 permanent members, with an additional complement of supernumeraries for crowd scenes, bringing the total number of actors to 170 by the second season. Additionally, there was to be a full orchestra, which of course would require a conductor, and there was a chorus led by a chorus master. On the production side, there would be more than 50 stagehands, carpenters, prop builders, and costumers. You could never do even a fraction of that today on a budget of $1.4 million. All those people would be necessary to mount the first season, starting with the very first production, Tsar Fyodor Ivanovich, a blockbuster historical pageant depicting political and religious intrigue in the 16th century. 
Tsar Fyodor featured complex battles and crowd scenes, which Stanislavski staged in the style of the Meiningen Ensemble that had toured Russia in 1890. The influence of the Meiningen troupe on Stanislavski and everyone else can't be overstated. The more you looked within the Meiningen crowd scenes, the more you saw specific individuals interacting with each other. The costumes and settings were highly realistic and historically accurate to a degree that was new to Russian audiences. The acting was truthful with a sense of Per Giovanni lived experience, unheard of for that time. Stanislavski took notes. He scoured the Russian countryside in search of authentic props and costumes. In his memoir, My Life in Art, Stanislavski describes the opening scene of Tsar Fyodor. The colorful costumes of the boyars and the procession of servants carrying platters of roast fowl, chines of beef, mountains of fruit, and their rolling barrels of wine on stage. Two stewards pour mead into wooden jugs while another rolls in a band of wine. Nine others carry in huge dishes piled with mead and fruit. This was to be the first show of the first season, ten shows in all, and they would go all out spending lavishly on physical production and personnel before they had sold a single ticket. Where would the money come from? Nemirovich, who had no money of his own, imagined that Stanislavski, the Alexiev, would be the sugar daddy and finance the whole thing with family business money. And he probably could have. But Stanislavski wisely understood that if he bankrolled it on his own, the enterprise would be viewed as a massive vanity project. Instead, he insisted that it be organized as a commercial entity with multiple shareholders investing at various levels, some quite substantial, while also granting small shares to the principal artists who, in many cases, were taking substantial cuts in pay in order to be part of the new enterprise. It's worth noting that from the bottom to the top, from the stagehands and seamstresses, the supernumeraries, the musicians and the curtain pullers, to the actors, directors and designers, wages in that era were incredibly low by today's standards. Olga Nipper's salary that first year was only 3,000 rubles, 45,000 in today's dollars, the equivalent of what a Moscow University professor might have earned not so different from today's horribly underpaid adjunct professors. But that was near the top of the scale. Other company members earned a third of that amount. Backstage workers, costumers, props makers, stagehands, earned significantly less, 336 rubles a year, in line with the salary of a non-theatrical laborer, less than $5,000 in today's money. Those incredibly low salaries might explain why a revolution was almost inevitable. So yes, everyone was overworked and underpaid. Well, maybe not everyone. At one point, they considered offering Vera Komarsarshevskaya 10,000 rubles, but decided against it because it violated the new no-stars philosophy. Arrangements had been made to rent the Hermitage Theater for the first season, but it wouldn't be available until the fall. So in those heady days after the Slaviansky Bazaar meeting, with the grand plan drawn up and the new company assembled, the principal actors, directors, and designers packed up and went to summer camp. 
A large barn near the town of Pushkino, some 20 miles from Moscow, was secured. I don't know if this was the first time a fledgling theater company decided it would be a good idea to retreat to the country, but it certainly wasn't the last. Theater people seem to have a penchant for getting away from the hurly-burly of the business when their goal is to reinvent themselves and forge a new theater of the future. Roughly 30 years later, the group would pitch their proverbial tents 50 miles from New York at the southern tip of the Berkshire Mountains in Brookfield, Connecticut. At around the same time, Michael Chekhov's fledgling company was camping out in the English countryside. Jacques Copeau's company had made Burgundy their home for nine years, starting in the mid-twenties. In Brookfield, a leather-bound notebook was provided in which those chosen for the new group could inscribe their thoughts and feelings. Now closes another beautiful day in the happiest summer of my life. In this almost paradisical interlude, life is straightforward. I I put all the and wonder healthy. and beauty of the group in these pages. The feeling that's most completely satisfying is the fact that I don't know where the work finishes and life Our begins. life is part of the group, or rather the group is. Someday the words individual and group should be almost synonymous. Individuality grows as it contributes. I believe to as I have wanted to believe for almost 10 years in some person, idea, Here's thing, to you, comrades, Godspeed to us all. It's easy to imagine similar feelings of possibility and gratefulness bubbling up in the company settling in at Pushkino that first summer of 1897. Stanislavski's own impressions tended toward, shall we say, the more practical. Financially speaking, it was more convenient to spend the summer outside Moscow and rehearse there. It would also be healthy. The actors were housed in Dutchess that we had rented for them in Pushkino. There was one person responsible for cleanliness and tidiness, another for food, a third for matters pertaining to the theater, i.e. notifying them when rehearsals had been confirmed or put off or whether the directors and the management had made new decisions. And so it began. Tsar Fyodor was a huge hit. It ran for 60 performances with full houses that first season and would be revived numerous times in the years to follow. If it had not been a hit, if it had crashed and burned, there probably would have been no Moscow Art Theater, no system, perhaps no group theater, no actor studio. Tsar Fyodor did succeed, laying the financial foundation for everything that followed. In fact, the six productions that followed Tsar Fyodor in that first season were not particularly successful, playing to half-houses and indifferent audience and critical response. But the eighth production, The Seagull by Anton Chekhov, cemented Stanislavski and the Moscow Art Theater's place in history for all time. In the midst of getting deep into the birth pangs of the Moscow Art Theater, I came across a sequence of events involving a major backer and member of the MAT board of directors, one Sava Morozov, that really caught my attention. In the third season of the Moscow Art Theater, the year is 1900, production expenses had risen from 50 to 100,000 rubles. 
They had already abandoned their initial dream of a people's accessible theater and raised ticket prices, but they were still bleeding red ink with losses of 52,000 plus a deficit of 27,000 from the previous year. Fortunately, a board member, Sava Morozov, came up with the entire amount. They undertook a major renovation of the hermitage, adding state-of-the-art lighting and other amenities. In My Life in Art, Stanislavski wrote warmly of this remarkable man who undertook the supervision of stage and auditorium lighting, throwing himself heart and soul into the work, dressed in overalls and working alongside the electricians. Alexander Gorky, who by then was totally involved with the company, wrote, When I see Morozov backstage at the theater, covered in dust and anxious about the success of the play, I am prepared to forgive him all his factories, which he does not really need, and love him because I feel almost palpably in his peasant-like, mercantile, money-grubbing soul a disinterested love of art. Nemirovich was suspicious of Morozov. He probably viewed him as a competing power center. Chekhov, too, was wary, writing, Morozov is a good man, but he should not be allowed too close to the essence of the business. He is capable of judging actors, acting, and plays much as the public does, but not like a manager or a director. But Morozov eventually won all of them over by his intense commitment and sweat equity. Nemirovich had long had a dream of building a new theater. Once again, Morozov came to the rescue. Out of his own pocket, he financed the capital reconstruction of the Leonazov Theater. Extensive work lasting three months continued during the spring and summer of 1902, supervised by Morozov, who not only worked, but virtually lived on site. Now that's a board member. The major renovations included state-of-the-art lighting, a massive turntable, and a new wing dedicated to rehearsals. Then there was the matter of a new front curtain. In the center, where both halves of the curtain met, were two darker gold rectangles placed at about head height, containing within them the white stylized emblem of a seagull in flight. This sign, like a trademark, found its way onto all objects associated with the theater. If you go to the MAT website today, mxat.ru, you can see it right there on the home page. So much hope, so much promise, and so many seeds of conflict already sown. I've painted a rather idyllic picture of theater summer camps with Stanislavski, Klerman, and Michael Chekhov at their respective helms. We don't have to imagine. There are group portraits of beautiful, beaming, or intensely glowering young people in their summer whites, squinting into lenses as they sprawl on the lawns of Brookfield and Dartington Hall. Look, there's Lee and Bobby and Sandy and Aliyah. There's Ronald Bennett with his arm around Beatrice Strait. One row down, Michael Chekhov in a gray suit and fedora looks like an insurance salesman. There's another photo taken a couple of years after Pushkino, a supposedly candid but obviously staged group photo of the Moscow Art Theater Company sitting around a table while Anton Chekhov reads the seagull to them. There's Anton and Constantine in the center, of course. 
The two wives, Olga Nipper-Cherkovna and Lilina Alexieva, though neither woman is standing next to their man, that feels like a statement too, something about the women's professional independence from their husbands. Far off to the right sits an aloof and impatient-looking Meyerhold who would play Treplev, the doomed, failed writer, son of Arkadina. On the other far side is Nemirovich Danchenko, leaning in, looking as if he would rather also be in the center of the photo. Stella Adler always felt more the grown-up than the overgrown kids around her at camp. Her disagreements with Strasbourg started there and would bloom into a feud that would outlive them both. But that's not what doomed the group, almost from the start. Their innate impulse to experiment and break rules was not really suited for the Broadway theaters they hoped to command with full houses. They wanted to have it both ways, to be the cutting-edge experimental troupe burning new paths through the theatrical landscape and the box office success. If Hollywood came calling too, well, they might consider it. Broadway won. The group lost or at least in the near term. They barely lasted a decade and then passed into legend. The only one of them to go on to be a bona fide movie star was John Garfield, whom they had all dismissed as a wet-behind-the-ears kid they might condescend to mentor. I'll get to his story later. Nemirovich and Stanislavski would argue continuously about everything, pretty much from the moment they shook hands at the conclusion of the Slaviansky meeting until one of them died. The other one died just a few years later. Nemirovich always faded to be on the outside, upstaged by Stanislavski, fought constantly for more control, both managerial and artistic. Eventually, Stanislavski, exhausted from the battles, chose to step to the side and let Nemirovich exert control. No matter. By then, his legacy had been established. His progeny were spreading the word all over the world, and Nemirovich was mostly forgotten. And Morozov? As early as 1904, infighting within the theater had come to a furious boil with competing camps vying for power. Nemirovich complained of backstage Morozovitis. Olga Nipper wrote to Chekhov that the merchant is just waiting for Stanislavski and Nemirovich to fall out. When Nemirovich vetoed the inclusion of a play by Gorky, Morozov resigned his position on the board. Within a year, he was dead by suicide. Sometimes what happens on stage really is a matter of life or death. But all that came later. As they concluded the first season, riding high on the financial success of Tsar Fyodor, and even higher on the artistic and critical success of Siegel, it really seemed that everything they had dreamed of and planned was coming into glorious being. For the second season, Anton Chekhov dusted off an earlier work, The Wood Demon, cut the cast in half and tweaked the plot to produce Uncle Vanya, he was then commissioned to write The Three Sisters, and finally The Cherry Orchard, which premiered in 1904. The momentum was broken, though, when Chekhov died later that same year. It was horrifying, but not unexpected. 
He had been carrying the consumption that killed him, what we now call tuberculosis, since the age of 25. Chekhov's death was not the only thing that rocked the company. The hypernaturalism that had become the MAT brand was beginning to wear out its welcome. Jaded Moscow audiences were clamoring for new forms. Perhaps it was the turmoil generated by the first failed revolution in 1905, but suddenly the question of a theater of the future seemed to be on everyone's lips. As the scholar and critic Konstantin Rudnitsky wrote, it was the subject of endless discussion and furious debate by people who had momentarily forgotten their usual pursuits. It was as if Russia's historical fate depended on solving the problems of the theater. Stanislavski responded by putting Meyerhold, his most iconoclastic protege, in charge of a 600-seat theater in Povarskia. Stanislavski's mission statement, framed in a speech he gave to the assembled new company, acknowledged the awakening of the social forces in the country. The theater has not the right to serve only pure art. It must respond to social moods, suggesting a turn toward theater that might be more politically aware. But Meyerhold seems to have ignored this, writing, how fine it is to laugh in the face of the crowd when it fails to understand us. His experiments with extreme stylization of speech, where the internal connections in the dialogue were broken apart, baffled the new audience. Meanwhile, there was fighting in the streets. Success for the studio on Povarskia became impossible, and it quickly closed. Stanislavski absorbed the losses, but he was more focused on solving his own personal artistic challenges. He had become dissatisfied with his own work as an actor. I wanted to find out where all my former joy and creation has vanished. Why was it then that the more I repeated my roles, the more I sunk backward into a stage of fossilization? God, how my soul and my roles were disfigured by bad theatrical habits and tricks, by the desire to please the public, by incorrect methods of approach to creativeness, day after day and every repeated performance. And then a role which had become stale would inexplicably come alive. I understand that to the genius on the stage, this condition almost always comes of itself, in all its fullness and richness. Are there no technical means for the creation of the creative mood, so that inspiration may appear oftener than is its wont? This was the impetus for him to begin assembling a collection of elements, relaxation, concentration, identification of objectives and actions, sense memory, emotional memory, imagination, the magic gif, that if purposely activated and practiced might spur this elusive spirit of creativity. He started writing it down. And when he brought these ideas, this system, into the rehearsal room at the Moscow Art Theater, the principal actors turned away. They knew what they were doing. Art cannot be manufactured using a system. Stanislavski realized that he would need to create a company within the company made up of younger actors who would be more receptive to new ideas, new approaches. The studio he had handed Meyerhold may have failed, 
but the idea of a studio was sound. Many thanks to Wendy Smith for gaining access to the notebook buried in the group archives and shared in her book, Real Life Drama, The Group Theater and America. I've also relied heavily on Nick Worrell's account of the Moscow Art Theater. Thanks again to Jonathan Kells Phillips for voicing Stanislavski. In the next chapter of the saga, we will enter the real first studio and meet its members, Yevgeny Vaktangov, Richard Boleslavsky, Maria Uspenskaya, Michael Chekhov, and its leader and Stanislavsky's right hand, the remarkable Leopold Sulerzhitsky. But before we go there, I hope you'll listen to my conversation with B.D. Wong. That's episode 13, coming up next. Gurus, the Story of Acting was written by me, Jeff Zinn, and is produced by Dwight Street Book Club, Rollin Jones, Adam O'Byrne, Tony Manna, and Nicholas Hassong with help from Mary Seidel. Music, editing, and mixing are by Jay Hagenbuckle. Very special thanks to Brendan Hughes. For a complete list of sources, including books, articles, and other podcasts, and a treasure trove of images, visit our website, storyofacting.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.